We come this morning in our study of Revelation to consider the fifth and sixth seals. This is found in Revelation chapter 6. It begins in verse 9. And again, we're going to take a fairly dramatic turn in these uh, unfolding of events. Uh, two chapters John spent describing the throne. And then the beginning of chapter 6, he talked about what uh, is popularly known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But it's the, the first four uh, series of judgments that really are the product, as we studied last week, of man's own sin, reaping the harvest of what we've sown. And so uh, those four horsemen, as I mentioned last week, and we'll go over that again this morning briefly in our uh, exposition, are not really a part of the Great Tribulation. They are uh, the beginning of birth pangs. Jesus says in Matthew 24, after these things there will come tribulation such as has never been seen uh, in, the, in the world before. And so these four horsemen represented um, the culmination of man's sin and selfishness and inhumanity to one another. And then finally, as we come to verse 9 this morning, um, we, we make another shift. And we open with the fifth seal, and then the sixth in this uh, remainder of the chapter. And um, in my reading, I think that this represents the actual beginning of the period of the Great Tribulation. The reason I say that is because as we pull the curtain back on the fifth seal, and we look at that, the um, souls that are under the altar um, cry out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood and our death upon those who have persecuted us? And the response is, Just a little while longer. And then begin to unfold uh, somewhat rapidly in terms of the whole of human history uh, a series of events that brings God's judgment and really, it isn't very long when you uh, compare it to all of uh, human history, at least uh, 6,000 or so years worth. And so, um, this morning, as we look at the uh, remainder of chapter 6, there are really two things, uh, that, uh, two concepts that I, that I want to go over with you. One is a bit more academic. Uh, I want to look at, uh, get a preview of the the way the judgments of God unfold, beginning now and moving all the way through chapter 17. And then I want to come back to the fifth seal, and I want to uh, become a little more introspective, a little more personal, a little more heart-experiencing. Uh, what is the nature of and our beliefs and views concerning suffering, uh, not only suffering in general, but specifically suffering for the cause of Christ. Um, it's important for us to have both, uh, both things going on in our, in our lives. We need a, an overviewing uh, concept. We need an understanding of what God is revealing. Uh, and we also need a heart response 
to what that means for us. And so we're going to look at those two things this morning. Um, when uh, we read the rest of the chapter before we move into Roman 1, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called on the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? As we look at the what I've called the academic portion of uh, this study, we look at the unfolding of events uh, over the next uh, 10 chapters or so, 10 or 11 chapters, we find that there are three sets of judgments in the Revelation, each comprised of seven events. The first one is seven seals. And we've already looked at four of those, and now this morning the fifth and the sixth. Those uh, take us into the beginning verse of chapter 8. Then there are seven trumpets, beginning in chapter 8, verse 2, and going through 1119. Uh, angels sound trumpets, one through seven. And um, each one of those trumpets is followed by some kind of uh, cataclysmic and judgmental event in the most part. And then... Finally, there are seven bowls of wrath. They begin in chapter 15 and 16. And these bowls of wrath, of which again there are seven, could be considered the pure outpouring of the wrath of God upon sinful humanity. If you look at kind of the way it began, four horsemen largely man's reaping of his own harvest. God brings out this event by withdrawing His grace and allowing these horsemen to go forth, as they are called. But essentially, this is man dealing with man. Uh, we've seen through human history the atrocities that human beings can bring to one another. And we looked at that sequence of events. If you want to jump to the end of the judgments to the seven bowls, that is virtually entirely God 
bringing his wrath upon the ungodly. And in the middle uh, is a mixture of both human sinfulness, divine judgment, and the, the role of Antichrist in leading the world astray. Uh, and so you, you, you start out with man uh, bringing things to an end by his own ungodliness, ushering in the time of great tribulation and the ultimate rule of the man of sin who rises up with an answer, at least temporarily, and then it ends with the outpouring of the pure wrath of God upon humanity that has resisted His grace. Uh, one of the interesting things about chapter 6 is, is that we, we find as the sixth seal is broken, we're at suddenly the end of the human race as we know it. The sun is darkened, the moon turns red like blood, stars are falling from the sky, people are looking for places to hide, there's nowhere to hide, they can't find a place to hide, things are collapsing, and we say, how did we go in chapter 6, how did we go from the very beginning prior to the tribulation and suddenly find ourselves at the very end of human history? How did that happen in one chapter? And one of the things that um, I want to point out to us this morning is that chronology, that is a linear sequence of events, is not necessarily how Revelation is laid out. Oftentimes, we're given a glimpse or given a preview uh, into, we kind of like jump ahead and see the last chapter, and then we come back and we see the intervening things that go on. And so, when we see this end time of human history in chapter 6, then we go back in chapter 7 and we start to peel it apart. And then we have trumpets, and then we have bowls. And so, uh, as we begin to look at that, I think uh, I'm ready for that slide, number 6. I want to explain... Uh, at least the way I visualize this occurring. Notice that I use the word proposed. Um, I'm not sure that anyone can uh, drive down in nails and set in stone the right interpretation of Revelation. Um, I do believe there will come a time, if we're alive, toward the end of the age, there will come a time when Revelation reads like the morning paper, and it makes completely good sense to us. Now, it is describing things that are in the future, and they're still a bit blurry. That uh, They're like, as Paul put it in Corinthians 13, looking through a glass darkly. Uh, they're a bit hazy. Uh, they're there. But uh, the, the distinguishing characteristics are going to take a little while. So I use the word proposed intentionally. And, uh, and I also uh, share with you that this is my proposal. Okay? Uh, you are always free to disagree with me. <laughs> I hope you're a student of Scripture. I hope you go home and study your Bible. 
And if you say, you know what, I think you've lost your mind. I, I think it's like this, and here's why. Uh, I'm all for that. All right, I'm on a rabbit trail officially right now. But, uh, but I just uh, I, I want to tell you about my uh, senior orals. I had to, uh, to appear before two of my professors in order to graduate, and I had to present my view of Scripture and theology and defend it biblically. And uh, uh, there, there was on campus, among all the professors, two who represented the extremes. One was an extreme Arminian, and the other was an extreme five-point Calvinist, graduate of Edinburgh, Ph.D., from Scotland, you know, with that, uh, all of that rich Scottish background in Presbyterianism. And so... These two got assigned together to be my, my uh, proctors and interviewers for the exam, and I thought, wow, this is like divide and conquer. This is going to be a piece of cake. I've got an extreme Calvinist and an extreme Arminian, and I can pit them against one another and strategically win the day, you know? I should have known. They had a little bit more spiritual maturity than I did. And uh, they, they never allowed me to pit them one against the other. They stayed rather right to the topic. And what they wanted to know was, what do you believe? And can you support it biblically and exegetically? And, and I want to say to you this morning, I'm probably going to say some things as we go through Revelation with which you disagree. In fact, one of them may be coming up pretty soon. And, uh, and that's all right. I want to challenge you to study. I want you to pray over the Scripture. I want you to study the Scripture. If you disagree with me, and you can explain why you disagree with me and support it with Scripture, I'm all for you. Uh, that's all right with me. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I'm not one of those uh, demagogue theologians that, depend, uh, that demands that you uh, believe exactly what I say 100%. And when we start talking about this pro- prophecy stuff, uh, there, there's a lot of uh, kind of movement that can happen until the time actually begins to unfold. So as we look at this, now enough said, I'm off the rabbit trail and back to the uh, illustration. Uh, as we look at this, this is the way I see this happening. The first four seals predate the tribulation period. But with the opening of the fifth seal... This is probably the beginning of the tribulation, and within between the fifth and sixth seal, the trumpets occur. Not quite yet. Can you back up one? Thank you. Um, the trumpets occur one through five. And then as we get to the fifth trumpet, the bowls begin to be poured out. So in other words, what we're seeing here is a condensation of this whole end time period that as we move toward the end of one sequence of judgments, the others begin. And then as we move toward the end of that, the final thing right at the end are the bowls of wrath. But after we deal with these first five, now number six comes up. And the seal and the trumpet and the bowl all seem to relate to the same event. We find the same things happening with the sixth of each one 
in every case. And so when you kind of compare them, it's like, oh, well, this is all talking about the same event. And it's possible that this is when the rapture of the church occurs, is somewhere along with this sixth seal and trumpet. Now, I remember saying that, and I'm going to go over this in detail in a few weeks when we get to the sixth trumpet, because that's the most logical place to deal with it. Don't let it upset you that I don't have the rapture at the very beginning right now. Go home and study. You know, check your Bible. It'll shed some light on your commentaries. D.L. Moody said that. Read your Bibles. It'll shed some light on your commentaries. Okay, and, and check it out in Scripture. Because it was not the footnotes and it was not the commentaries that have led me to my understanding of the book of Revelation. It is the Scripture that has led me to an understanding of it. And then you go back and it's like, well, I wonder where they got that from. And then the seventh of each, trumpet, bowl, and seal, is also the same event. It is when Christ visibly, bodily returns to earth and establishes His millennial kingdom. And a lot goes on in 6 and 7. We don't know the time sequence of that, but a lot goes on in 6 and 7. I I read one fellow, and he said, um, the reason that I believe that the rapture occurs at the beginning of the tribulation is because um, it's going to take time to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and everybody be judged uh, for the deeds of righteousness that they have done and receive their crowns. And, and there needs to be given adequate time for that event to occur. Every person needs to appear before Christ and have some interaction and, and examine their lives and uh, be presented with the crown or not, you know, depending on what survives uh, the uh, evaluation. And by the way, you know there's no sin at that judgment we're not being judged for sin. We're, we're being uh, judged on the basis of how much of our life was yielded to the control of the Holy Spirit. What did God, uh, what was God able to accomplish through us? That's what that judgment is all about. And those who were very open and transparent uh, and yielded to the Spirit of God are going to receive great reward. And those who pretty much uh, lived in their own strength and power are going to find that most of their works don't survive. But it's not about sin. Sin has already been dealt with in the cross. And we need to keep that solidly in mind. But anyway, this guy said there needs to be time for that to occur. And I thought, well, today there's somewhere between, what, 7 and 8 billion people on the planet? Right? Right now. What if 1 billion of them are true believers? Just today. But let's allow a good margin of error, because not everyone who sits in church and and says they're a Christian is a Christian. The wheat and tares are growing together. And so let's go back throughout all of human history. Let's say in all of human history, from the very beginning of time, there are one billion people that followed God. And they're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And, I, and then I thought to myself, okay, if there's one billion people that have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, how much time would each person have 
in seven years, if the judgment ran 24-7, how much time would each person have in front of Jesus in seven years? You know what the answer is? Four and a half seconds. 4.5 seconds. Do you think that's enough time for a, a careful contemplation and consideration of your life's work? I don't think so. I, that's, that's where we get into trouble. We start making these crazy statements, and we try to nail them down, and we try to understand all of this stuff according to our logic. And, and I don't think this guy ever did the math, because seven years, 70 years, <laughs> there's not a lot of time in that period of time for every believer to have a meaningful encounter face-to-face with Jesus Christ in a contemplative, reflective fashion. What if it happened simultaneously all at once? And what if God, in His penetrating wisdom, were able, in the blink of an eye, to examine our entire life and bring it before us? You know, we try to nail this stuff down logically, and we're talking God here. He doesn't do things like that. So I don't know. But I, I just, I, when you read stuff, think about it and, and uh, give it some time. So, if this is the way things unfold, we're going to be coming back each time we start a new sequence. We're going to be coming back to this fifth seal just a little bit longer. Because there's trumpets. And there's bowls. And when we get to the fifth trumpet, just a little bit longer, because there's bowls. And then finally, there's a a connection personally with Jesus Christ, and the end comes rather quickly. In all probability, the sixth in the series represents the rapture, while the seventh represents the visible return of Christ to, to this earth to establish Uh, His millennial kingdom. And so, kind of keep this outline in mind. Now, if you want the rapture to occur uh, between four and five, that's okay. Just support it with Scripture. If you want it to occur somewhere in the middle, like before the bowls, that's okay. Just support it with Scripture. Give give some reasons why you believe that's going to happen. You say, God's going to get me out of this mess, and and Christians aren't going to have to deal with any of this tribulation stuff. What makes the Great Tribulation different from all other times of tribulation on the earth? What makes the Great Tribulation different? The whole world's involved. That's what makes it different. Every other time of tribulation has been local. But listen... If you were a Jew in Germany during World War II, it's hard to imagine how it could get worse. Okay? It just happened in one place. It wasn't going on worldwide. But it's hard to to fathom how it got worse. You know, there's stuff that we use in medicine today, and we've kind of... I guess the science of it has demanded that their sacrifice not be in vain and we pay attention to it. 
But do you know, for example, how we discovered uh, osteotomes? You say, what is an osteotome? An osteotome is a part of the bone that is innervated by a specific nerve root in the back. If you examine an anatomy book, you will find that the L5 nerve root goes to a specific part of bone in the leg. You know how they found that out? In Germany's Holocaust, they went in and cut the nerve in a living person, and then they took steel-pointed objects and poked them into the bone until they found the dead spots. That's how they discovered that. There was a discussion after World War II that we should destroy all of those discoveries and not use them in science because of the way they were obtained. The only problem is there's no other way to learn them. And so, as a consequence, we use it today. But it has a very bad history. And that's just one example. I won't gross you out or, or gore you out in this morning, but the things that happened in the, in the communist revolution in China to believers, as children were forced to mow down their believing parents with machine gun fire and then were rewarded with a gold-edged copy of the writings of Chairman Mao, if they dipped their finger in the blood from the platform and wiped it on their little smocks, they could get a gold-edged copy of Chairman Mao. Can you imagine tribulation being worse? It's not that it hasn't happened. It's that it's never happened on a global scale. That's what makes it the great tribulation. And the idea that believers will not suffer any persecution is more a concept of the prosperity gospel than of the biblical gospel. The Bible teaches, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You say, I don't know how I could stand that kind of thing. Well, I'm glad to tell you, you don't have to know today. You don't have to deal with it today. Jesus said, when they bring you before the magistrates, the Holy Spirit Himself in that hour will give you what you need to say. If you live by the Spirit and walk by the Spirit, you do not have to fear tomorrow. God will give you grace and take care of you until He has brought you safely to His heavenly kingdom. We need to keep this in mind. We need to have an understanding that we have not been promised beds of ease and bowls of cherry for our Christian life. And there is going to come a time when it gets tough. We're already facing this in America. We're already seeing it. As um, already, uh, I forget which state it is. Is it Iowa? I don't want to quote that exactly. It's out yonder somewhere. Uh, 
Um, one of the states in the greater Midwest has already determined that hate speech and hate crimes will be expanded inside the church to the pulpit. So that pastors who speak disparagingly of the LGBT you know, agenda can be prosecuted for anti-philosophy of the government's movement, anti-abortion, same thing, you can be prosecuted if you speak within the walls of the church. That is a change, because up until this time, you could say what you wanted to in the pulpit, as long as you didn't go out on the street necessarily and confront people with that kind of preaching message. Uh, you could be prosecuted for hate crimes if things turned ugly uh, in a rally, but you could not be prosecuted for saying something in your own pulpit. Now that is changing. One of our local pastors received a visit this past week from the FBI. They uh, came to inform him uh, as a way of uh, due diligence that his name was on a hit list from ISIS, that they had discovered that he had been identified as an ISIS target. And they said, we have a duty to inform you of this. We don't think it's an imminent threat. We don't think you're in any danger uh, at this moment. If the threat level changes, we will also let you know but because of your uh, internet sermons and things that are out there, people have heard them, and your name has been added to an ISIS hit list. The list is not that big. It's under a thousand of pastors across America that have been identified to be murdered by ISIS at the first opportunity. All right, we're living in some tough times, folks but they're going to get tougher. And we need to have an understanding. We need to have a theology. Uh, and when I say a theology, I'm not talking about some ideology in a book. I'm talking about an internal belief system, an internal conviction of, of what suffering means and what it is to follow Jesus Christ. We need to have that in order to fortify us against the times that we may live through. As we move on, uh, or as we come back to the beginning of uh, this ninth verse in uh, Revelation 6, we find souls under the altar. It's the first time that we're told about an altar or any believers being there. We haven't seen this in this heavenly scene before. But under the altar in the Jewish mind was a place of special honor. Uh, to be buried in Jerusalem, or to be buried in Israel, I should say, the Holy Land was like being buried beneath the altar. That was how the Jewish mind thought of it. This is a special privilege. This is a special blessing to, to be able to be uh, in the holy place. Under the altar was where the blood of bulls and goats and, and, and lambs were slain, and the blood ran down to the foot of the altar. 
And that was uh, that sacred blood that covered their sin. And so to be beneath the altar is a figurative term. It's not like uh, we have an image of them under the table, but it's not quite like that. <laughs> you know, yeah, how many people can you fit under the table anyway? But, uh, but that's the metaphor of being beneath the altar in that place of special honor and privilege that you're right there where the atonement has covered you and cleansed you. And they ask this cry, this plaintive question, as it relates to the suffering. They say, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Let me just say in passing that they recognize God as sovereign, as holy, and as true. In other words, they acknowledge that He is the one in charge, that He is a holy God, and that He must punish sin, and that He is true. Everything He has said is absolute truth. And so as a consequence, they're asking the very logical question, Lord, we were murdered for our faith. We were martyred for our faith. We were killed for You by ungodly people who shed our blood. How long before You avenge us? Because justice is Mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I will repay. When are You going to do it? And the answer they're given is, uh, wait just a little while longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I want you to think about that statement a moment. Wait a little longer until the full number are killed just as you have been. What are the implications of that? First of all, there is a number of believers to be martyred. There's a known number. I don't know the number, but God knows that number. Just as God knows who will be saved, God knows who will be martyred. Please note that I did not say that He causes them to be saved and causes them to be martyred. But He knows the number. And, and so... That's the first implication. God has a number of brothers and sisters of the faith who will die for their testimony for Jesus Christ. The second thing is that God has chosen or permitted that number to be slain. In other words, God has allowed that to happen. You remember the conversation that Jesus had with Peter on the seashore after the resurrection? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. You know that. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know. What about him? Pointing to John. What about him? In other words, why don't you 
stop focusing on me for a moment and go focus on my brother John over here. And Jesus says this to Peter. What is it if I desire that he tarries until I return? What difference does that make to you? Do you love me? That's my question. It's an interesting statement that Jesus made because church tradition and and extra-biblical history tell us that Peter was crucified for his faith, not being a Roman citizen. He was put to death by crucifixion, and that being one who did not want to dishonor his Lord, he said, it it is not worthy that I die in the same manner. He was, according to the, the story, he was crucified upside down. We find John, 30 years later, still writing, <laughs> you know. He's still hanging in there. As far as we know, John died a natural death. In other words, Jesus knew the fate of each one in that conversation. And there are those who will give their lives for Jesus Christ and his testimony, whom he knows. And he is permitting that to happen. We spend a lot of time in prayer asking God to rescue people who have, who are serving in difficult places, who are imprisoned for their faith, who are under attack. I wonder sometimes if we're not interfering with God's plan. This is deep stuff, folks. This is deep stuff. I I get it. I pray for every person that I know. I pray for them for safety and security and protection. It's my privilege to do so. But if God chooses to allow martyrdom... That is not the worst thing that can happen. In fact, it may be the very best. There is a crown for those who experience martyrdom. Jesus was seated in the heavenlies. Do you remember that? He was raised and seated at the right hand of God. But what is he doing as Stephen is being stoned to death? He's standing to receive him into heaven. Jesus stood to welcome his brother Stephen. Isn't that amazing? King of kings, Lord of lords, standing ovation, come to me. How precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Suffering for Christ is always presented as a blessing and privilege in the New Testament. I started to list the references and there were just too many to put in the outline. But all through the New Testament there is blessing and privilege and and praiseworthiness of being able to um, suffer for Christ. This is a, a great 
opportunity to love and serve the Lord Jesus. To be slighted because you're a Christian. To be uh, left out of things at break time. To be ignored uh, and, and mistreated and made fun of because of your Christian faith. <laughs> That's the most we suffer now. But it's a blessing. It's a privilege. It's interesting to note the rest of the story of the FBI agent that visited uh, one of my pastor friends was a uh, believer. And he said to him, you know, there's one way to look at this, uh, perhaps a little differently. This is sort of a badge of honor that ISIS has identified you. Um, that's an interesting perspective, but it's absolutely true. It's a blessing to be able to suffer for Jesus Christ. Suffering unto death is promised a crown in the heavenly kingdom. We encountered that back in Revelation chapter 2. That there is a crown promised to those who suffer and die for the, their faith in Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 12 says... Um, and they uh, did not love their lives even to death. That they stayed true to the, the word of their testimony and the blood of the Lamb. And they did not count their lives valuable even unto death. And there is a crown for those. And so my question for you this morning is, how do you view suffering for the cause of Christ? When you think about what if the return of Jesus is a hundred years away? But what if in the providence of God it's time for America to come under judgment and as a consequence of that judgment believers undergo tremendous persecution locally? Just forget about the Great Tribulation for a moment. Imagine that you were in China during the revolution. Imagine that you're a believer in the Middle East right now today. Imagine that you're a follower of Jesus Christ in Syria. Imagine that you're a follower of Christ in Sudan. Imagine that America has gone off the wire. And now, in its vitriolic hatred of believers who remind them of truth, you become the object of their wrath. What if we suffer for Christ? How will you view that? God abandoned you? He's not taking care of you? He left you to these wicked people? Or is it a badge of honor to carry the life and light of Jesus Christ in dark places, even to the point of death, for the glory of Jesus Christ. To open your eyes in that twilight between this life and heavenly life and see Jesus standing at the throne of God welcoming you. What is best? I suggest, my friends, that we have a bit of a distorted view of what it means to follow Christ. And we've been sold a bit of a bill of goods thinking that
It guarantees that our life is going to be graced with ease throughout all of our days. That's not the promise. The promise is, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will give you by my Spirit what to say in every situation. And I will be with you to the end. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Bring it to bear upon our hearts and may we, with sober minds, recognize that we have committed our lives to you, Lord Jesus, not in fair seasons only, but to the end of life, whatever it brings. Because... Lord, as you turned to your disciples and said to them, Are you going to go away too? Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life eternal. Amen.